you know, my business has been in place now for 17 years, but we are not joking when we talk amongst ourselves that it feels like every single year has been a one-year startup. This is Don Myers, and you are listening to Why We Work. From Postgrad Media, this is Why We Work, a podcast featuring leaders, entrepreneurs, and visionaries who are changing the game. Whether you're wondering how to launch a million-dollar idea or at a standstill and just trying to figure out your next step, we're here to show you how influential you can be. Today on Why We Work, I brought on a friend of mine, Randy Harrington. He's the CEO of Extreme Arts and Sciences, which is a consulting firm specializing in strategic planning, transformational leadership, and organizational development. Now, to put that another way, he basically is someone that goes into a business and fixes things, like a business therapist or a doctor, pretty much. Some of his clients include Amazon, Adobe, and Microsoft, but he's also an author and travels the world as a speaker, which is actually how I met him. In this interview, we talk all about trying different careers, why his business still feels like a startup, losing a deal with Amazon, and why he wants to start dishwashing at his favorite restaurant. But first, I started off just asking Randy how this all started. It really even started before college. When I was a senior in high school, I was working <clears throat> for a newspaper. I, I wrote, uh, uh, I would cover all of the high school football games uh, in the region and would go take pictures, uh, drive from one game to another, take pictures, and then run in and <clears throat> write up all the news that night for the Saturday edition. And that actually got me a job as a sports writer in a paper for the, for the rest of my senior year. Uh, so my wife at the time, or... The woman I was going to marry was at Duke, and so uh, she was working at Duke in the medical center up there, so I went up to Chapel Hill uh, to do graduate work, and then after that, uh, I taught for a few years, and then actually got a job as a news anchor for a CBS television affiliate uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina, so I was a news anchor for about, oh, three years. So during this whole period... Were you ever confused about what you were doing and what you wanted to do? Because when you when you talk about it now, you seem like, oh, it was all part of my plan, you know, like, oh, did A, B, and C to get where I am now. But do you ever feel like at the time you were really lost and doing random things that you and you didn't know why you were doing them? Well, yeah. And I and to be really blunt, I still feel a little bit lost. I mean, even <laughs> now, uh, you know, my business has been in place now for 17 years, but we are not joking when we talk amongst ourselves that it feels like every single year has been a one-year startup. It's like the business changes that much right. year over year. And so uh, I've always been on kind of a wandering path journey. Uh, and even now, finding cohesion in, in that is is difficult. Did you ever have a moment when you started considering yourself like an entrepreneur and in- how did that fit in with like your interest in communication? And I'm always interested about that process of at what point do you say, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a creative, I want to start something. I feel like that's yeah. like, it's tricky. It is tricky. And uh, for me, it happened when I finished my PhD 
and I started looking for traditional teaching jobs. And the jobs were really pretty horrible. Um, they they didn't pay very well. There was not a lot of security uh, as far as tenure tracks or things like that. Uh, and I was struggling about taking a job at a university in the Northwest that I that I didn't think was a good job, but I felt like I had to do something. And in the meantime, while I was struggling with that, I got a job as a consultant for the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation in Washington. That they're, they're the people that manage the bank insurance fund. Uh, and I basically got a job teaching bank examiners who had gotten into trouble for doing really bad presentations <laughs> or offensive presentations to the banks that they were examining. And so if you got one of these kind of, uh, if somebody filed a complaint, you had to take my class. And it was then I learned I really liked working with real people with real problems and less about just sort of academic, you know, research on tiny little things of tiny little things. So it was then with that job with the FDIC, I went, oh, wow. Uh, I can. I think I can do more if I'm working in the real world, if I'm working as a practitioner. And so then one thing led to another, and I started a company. But I had to be pushed. <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> I know. It's funny because for me, I didn't consider myself an entrepreneur until I – well, I kind of got pushed into it as well because I couldn't get a job. This was a couple years back. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get a call back. I was applying, applying. I'm sure there was more I could have done, but at the time, I was so mad. I was like, you know, if I can't get a job, I'm going to create my own job. That's it. Just like rebelling the system. I think that's really the impulse uh, is this feeling of – I want to be in charge of my own life, and so by golly, I can't wait for everybody else. I can't do it on their terms. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And I'm delighted by the results of that. I, I mean, I think uh, my father was military and very, very strict. He's Air Force Colonel, flew helicopters, buttoned up. You know, everything was by the book and he was a military guy through and through and I looked at him and while I deeply respect his service and one part of me misses the opportunity that military service could provide I just knew that wasn't for me and I knew I needed to be making my own rules instead of following other people's rules all the time but I think another really important part, especially when you're starting something, is surrounding yourself with people that share the same vision as you or um, you get along with, like a good team, which I know you're all about. So how do you even, how do you go about finding those people? Or did you have people that were supporting you when you decided to start your own company? What was, were you on your own? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, the ideas that are in a book called The Lean Startup. And it's this approach that basically says when you're going to go into business, what you want to do is test with really small things. You want to see if there's an opportunity there, really. And so you're, you're kind of testing the waters. 
And for me, those tests looked like two things. It looked like uh, the, the main thing I was doing to, to earn money at the time was I was out working as a professional speaker. I was, I was working as a keynote speaker. And for me, the, the measure was if I go do a speech, do other people call me then to hire me to go do more speeches? And then from those speeches, do people hire me to do consulting work? And the answer to both of those was yes. So I'd go do a speech, and on, on average, if I did a speech, I'd usually get two more speeches from the speech that I did. So I wasn't having to market. I had a, a kind of a, a, a regular process there. I was doing two or three speeches a month all over the country. And, about uh, what, what, what kind of topics? Mostly about uh, technology transitions. While I was doing my PhD, I sold, uh, I worked part-time as a, computer network specialist and I sold computer networks to make money in my spare time. This would have been in the late 1980s, uh, early 1990s. <clears throat> so, you know, the tech boom was really just starting to happen. And so I learned a lot about uh, computer networks. And then I learned a lot about how organizations were dealing with changing from typewriters uh, <laughs> to integrated uh, data systems. And so I started going out on the road and talking about what are the issues that you have to face as a leader in an organization to move your business into uh, the world of being, uh, uh, you know, a successful digital firm. And I'm still basically doing that. It's just digital keeps changing, right? So uh, that was the main thing I talked about, though, was what are the, the leadership communication skills necessary to help organizations change? And you know me, you know that I have kind of an irreverent sense about things. I try to have fun. I try to be relaxed. Tell them, your, tell them your style. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, tell them what you do when you give speeches. <laughs> yeah, every, and from I don't know why, but even from the very, very beginning, when I would go do very formal keynote speeches, I would always take my shoes off and set them on the side of the stage. And I am not entirely sure why I did that. I just truly am more comfortable barefooted, you know. So, uh, but it, it became kind of a thing and people were like, oh, is he going to take his shoes off? And yes, I always take my shoes off. But I, I don't have my shoes on right oh, now. Me neither. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I liked you. Uh, so the, the, the neat thing about the, the moving into the workspace was I was getting good feedback from real people who were writing me real checks. So I had a sense of confidence that hmm, I'm doing okay just out sort of dancing around here on my own, but what would it look like if we pulled together, you know, a group of people much smarter than me uh, to work with me uh, to, to help extend what we can do? And I've had mixed results. Um, I have the curse of seeing potential in everybody, uh, when I meet people, I see what they could be, you know, and I will fight for them to have that potential revealed. And sometimes uh, the fit is good and sometimes it isn't. I'd say I, I'm about, you know, I bat 50-50. Uh, I've made some hires over the years that I thought were just perfect and they weren't. And then I've made hires where I was like, eh, we'll see. And the perfect person's been amazing. So it's 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 interesting because... 
even though I fancy myself to be a pretty sharp guy when it comes to communication, when it's your communication and your business and you can't be objective, it's much more difficult. Right. Yeah. And so when you were first doing your speaking gigs, did you do some for free at first? Because I know I was actually talking to my friend last night about this, about how when you're first getting started, you have a really hard time figuring out how much to charge and what to value yourself at. And a lot of people just end up doing it for free for a while. So did you ever have to do sacrifice your time and and speak for free before you ever started getting paid? Yes. Uh, I did a fair number of presentations for just my expenses, you know, where people would fly me wherever, but they wouldn't pay me anything. They would just cover my expenses. Um, and then even local speeches, you know, for Rotary and other groups like that. Those speeches are really important, though, because you can really test your material. And when somebody's writing you a check to come to a presentation, there's more constraint on, you know, you better be delivering something, you know. But, uh, I, I, you know, one of the reasons I've enjoyed working with YEBW is because it's a way for me to get in the room with young people. Uh, it's a way for me to just kind of absorb some of that energy. And it's also a way for me to test ideas in, in my presentation. So uh, I, I hope that the, the people in those audiences get something from it. But I'll tell you the truth. I'm really getting uh, the real benefit from that experience. So... Uh, I still do a lot of pro bono speaking because I find real opportunity there. So, yes, you got to do what you got to do. And I think the other thing is, you know, you have to, if you feel tired, nobody cares. If you feel a little bit sick, nobody cares. If your plane was late and you have to drive three hours to make the gig on time, nobody cares. So, you just have to do, the show must go on. You know, it, when you're an entrepreneur, it doesn't matter what your struggles are. You have to rise above everything and be there for the client no matter what. <clears throat> and you may feel terrible and be tired and have eaten a bad chicken sandwich and you're just hating life. Yeah. But you know what? When you're with the client, you've got to be their smiles, listening, really dialed in on what's going on. And that is the thing I think that I see missing in uh, people sometimes is it's like, well, they're, they're going to do great work if it's convenient. And I don't buy that. It's like you got to do great work all the time, no matter what. Yeah, so that, that kind of goes into something else I want to talk about is the characteristics of an entrepreneur. And I know you obviously work a lot in – in leadership and leadership skills. And I, I read your book too the other day um, about leadership. And I just think there's so many interesting points and characteristics of a successful entrepreneur. And I feel like not every entrepreneur has those characteristics. So in your experience with consulting um, business owners, sort of what, what characteristics or traits would an entrepreneur need to have? I can't not change things. I love to cook. I'm a pretty good cook. I, I, it's the way, one of the ways I relax. And I'll make a dish, and the family will say, that's perfect. But I'll never make it the same way again. Mm-hmm. It'll, I'll, I'll always mess with the recipe the next time I make it. So I'm always tweaking things. I'm always 
adjusting things and it drives people crazy. I can't deliver the same speech twice. People say, oh, go do that speech you did, you know, in Vegas. Well, I can't. Uh, uh, it'll, it might be have some of the stuff that's there, but I'm going to change it no matter what. So I think one of the first big characteristics of an entrepreneur is you're just always tinkering with everything in your life. Uh, I love music. I'm constantly going out and listening to new music and trying to find new stuff. Uh, I love the old stuff, but it's what's, what's the next thing around the corner that is the most interesting thing. And I think that's one of the big characteristics that I see in successful entrepreneurs is they kind of can't not be. It's like ADD. I think it's that's how it's categorized too. It's like a little ADD. <laughs> that's right. And and so even, you know, I so when I talk to really companies like Microsoft and others, big companies, one of the things I tell them is you need to create room for the entrepreneurs that are working for you. You need to give them a way to stretch out a little bit. And uh, we just hired a young man who's a... Uh, programmer currently living in Hawaii is going to be moving to Seattle really wicked smart programmer and he sent an email today saying hey you know I've got these obligations to I'm doing this mentor work for these people and I'm doing this other kind of supervisory work for these people and I don't want to back off of those commitments uh, are you okay with that and my answer is yes of course a I'm I'm proud that you're keeping your commitments and you're standing up for those commitments but second, you've, you've got to have that sense of your own engagement with the world. So even though he's going to come work for me, I really want him to feel like he has all the room he needs to be as much as he can be uh, from a programming development perspective. Yeah, and it's crazy now. And everyone, well, my generation pretty much, they stayed a job for a year or two and like, ah, moving on, I'm going to go to the next one. And so I feel like companies now, they have to provide more support to their employees, which is good news too. Yes. Uh, You know, and I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think uh, bringing somebody in, you know, one of the, I do a lot of work for uh, uh, people in the Southeast and they have trouble recruiting. Uh, There was a, a guy who was trying to recruit programming engineers to Dothan, Alabama. And guess what? He was having trouble. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, people don't want to move to Dothan, Alabama. Yeah. So how do you do that? Well, what you do is you give them a one-year contract and then you go ahead and pay them for a three-month vacation after that one-year contract. And then they'll move down there. They'll, the, you can give them three months of time where they can go do whatever they want. But you say, you're going to come down here, we're going to work hard, and then you're going to be free. It's the same way they get people to go to other parts of the world. You know, They just give them a longer uh, uh, break period where they can go travel and, and live the kind of dream life that they want to live. I'm finding time is so much more valuable than money in this economy. Mm-hmm. And, and what I love about millennials, what I love about young people like you, is you appreciate that now. You get that. My generation, we didn't get that. We believed that, oh, no, you have to work until your eyes bleed, and then maybe sometime when you're like 80, you'll be able to take some time and go do things. And that was very wrongheaded, I think. Um, that's actually – I never thought about it that way. That's really interesting. I totally see that now. What What are some of the drawbacks of that, though? Where? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, being kind of flitting from one thing to another, you mean? 
you know, I, I think as long as you are developing your own personal brand, uh, your own story of your own professional self, then it doesn't really matter. I think that the risk is that you find yourself at age 37 with nothing really adding up, nothing really kind of moving in any direction. And, you know, I would always say, are you gaining more experience, more wisdom, more freedom, more opportunity? And if you're not, then you need to check yourself out and go, hmm, maybe I need to, you know, lean into a, a specialty area a little bit more. There was an HR person I worked with, and she talked about wanting to hire T-shaped individuals, a T-shaped individual. And what this meant was somebody who had breadth in skills. They had a lot of, they've done a lot of things. They, you know, worked in several different places, blah, blah, blah. But they also have depth. They have one area in their life where they are a legitimate, if not expert, they have legitimate expertise. And I've always thought that was a really nice way to think about your job and your life. What are you doing to add breadth? But what are you also doing to be able to say, I can do that job. That's something I can absolutely do. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I see the breadth part in my generation where everyone wants to try new and different things. And I know I've struggled with this too, with the depth part, because you're so enamored with everything around you and all the different things you want to try. You can't focus on one thing. Right. And so what kind of advice would you give to someone my age or even a little bit younger who's in college or just graduating and they're interested in a lot of different things, but they can't pick one thing. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where to even start in my career path. Yes. Uh, you know, I think, a lot like a compass. So there's north, south, east, and west. Those are big general directions. And so I would have a student sit down and just think, and most people can do this. Are you a sciencey person or are you an arts person, right? Both are good. There's no problem with either one of these. But if you're a sciencey person, then that's going to tell us something. So what we want you to do is identify where's your passion, what, what really gets you motivated, and just go in a cardinal direction. You don't need to nail it down. For example, you might be a science person, but boy, in the world of science, that could be medicine, it could be molecular physics, it could be astronomical physics, I mean, who knows? So you don't need to get hung up on that just yet. Then you say, no matter what, if I'm a science person, what are the characteristics that I know I'm going to need to have? Well, you're going to need to have higher education. You're going to need to be pretty good in math. You're going to need to know basic biology and chemistry. So then you go take those courses. And I remember uh, I was in organic chemistry for like an hour when I went, no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough of that. <laughs> Not for me. Can I drop this class Sorry, immediately? I never started it. I knew from the get-go. So, you know, you, you, what you do is you put yourself in those situations where you're sort of, you're, you're trying it, you're testing it. And the beautiful thing about being, uh, you know, really 14 to 24 is it's a time in life where you can try things on. You can see, oh, does this work? Do, do I like this? Is this, oh, that's kind of... 
and I'm getting good feedback or I'm not getting good feedback. Is it making me happy? Is it making me sick? Is it making me sad? Right? So you're just, you're conscious of what's going on in your head when you try these things on. And sure enough, that'll usually guide you to where your real passion uh, and skill sets are. And then, of course, I'm a big believer that when you're ready, a teacher will come to you. Uh, there will be a person in your life who is going to step up and just when you just when you're ready for it, they're going to say, I've got an idea that might be good for you. And you're going to have a mentor. And that that mentorship is the most beautiful thing when it works out. It's it's a big key for success, I think. Yeah, that was something I want to talk to you about, too, is uh, when did that happen for you? And did you have a mentor all throughout your career? Uh, I know it's a big topic now is everyone's saying everyone needs a mentor you need a mentor and i think it stresses some people out like how do i find one how do, do i, I buy one person? i don't know <laughs> yeah exactly uh you know i was lucky i had a, a debate coach a guy named ty warren who was uh my mentor then and he continues i was just i just visited him in birmingham uh maybe three weeks ago and we had we sat out on his deck and talked for six hours uh, and he's very candid with me. He tells me what he thinks about my job and what I'm doing and what I'm doing well. But, uh, you know, I think that the trick with it is you, you need to communicate to people your willingness to learn. I just want to learn. And that's where I think your point about would you go do stuff for free in order to learn. And I think that's, that's the trick is to go and say, um, you know, for example, I, I am interested in cooking and, and I've actually toyed even now with the idea of going and volunteering to clean in some of the kitchens, um, in restaurants that I like. So I want to understand what's going on there. So I, I don't, I would go down and say, you don't have to pay me. I'll sign whatever you want me to sign so that it's the insurance is all taken care of. I'll get my food handler's permit and all I'll do is wash dishes. But it's I want just so you can see. eat the food in the back, eat the leftover <laughs> food in the back. And, and talk to the chefs and get to see what's going on and understand yeah. the technique and process. So I just think you have to put yourself out there and say, uh, I'd really like to learn more about this. <clears throat> could I could I shadow you for a day? Can I follow you around or whatever it is, you know? Uh, but I, I think that's that's a thing I don't hear a lot from young people. They're, they're a little shy about it. Yeah, they're prideful yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, yeah, and it's finding those people that'll be honest with you too. That's so valuable because you know everyone has yes. this friends like, oh, how was that? Like, oh, it's great. That's awesome. And great. I, mean, <laughs> it's great. You're great. <laughs> yeah, you look great. You're great. That's, a, that's a great outfit. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because now I appreciate way more if someone has constructive criticism and I actually yes. look for it now. But I think it's a maturity thing, too, because I used to be really scared if, if anyone said I did something wrong, it would freak me out. But yes. now I I sense it, it more in a constructive way. So I, I think it's a maturity thing, too. I do, too. And, uh, and a confidence thing mm. at some level. And it's human nature. You know, when I was doing all this keynote speaking, they would send me. Usually three days after the event, I'd get an email that says, oh, we evaluated your performance. Or there were 300 people in the audience, and they all filled out a little card 
And I'd look at the numbers, and on a scale of five, it was 4.3 out of five. And I was like, okay. And then I would look at the comments, and the comments were like, oh, loved it, loved it, loved it. And then there'd be some, I think that was an inappropriate statement, or I didn't like this, <laughs> or I... And so, like, three people say one bad thing, and I'm like, oh, you know, that's what I would focus on is that net one or two negative things. There's all kinds of good feedback, but I'm like, ugh. And it's just human nature, you know. Uh, and I finally got to the point, I was working with one guy uh, who's a terrific speaker, and he says, if you don't upset somebody, you're not doing your job. You know, you're not, you're not pushing the edges enough. If everybody's just all happy then you've just delivered a Hallmark card and nobody, you're not changing anything. So if you're upsetting people a little bit, you know, not in any way that is uh, abusive or derogatory, but if you're challenging them at an intellectual level, you know, that's, that's really what you want. What, what's the best piece of advice or the best criticism, constructive criticism you ever received in your career? Great question. Uh, and I remember as soon as you said the question, it just jumped right in. There's a woman named Joanne Bradford who was an executive at Microsoft. Tough woman. Um, just knew her business and was very good. And I was facilitating a series of meetings for her. And she sat in one of the meetings. And she had her arms folded in the back of the room and was just kind of staring at me. And after we took a break, she went like this. And I went over and she took me out in the hall and she kind of poked at me like this. And she said, do you know what you do when you speak? And I said, what? She said, you equivocate constantly. You'll say things like, well, maybe what we ought to do is, I don't know. And then maybe we could do a little bit of, and how about we try this or all these little softy words that muddle my idea. She said, drop them all, get rid of them all. They're crap. They make you sound weaker. They make what you're saying sound vague. And it's, it's a cop-out. Mm -hmm. You're not going on record with what you're saying. And I still do it. I still, those words sneak in because I'm a, I'm a friendly guy. You know, right. I don't want to shove ideas at people. Yeah. But she was very clear to me that the way I was presenting myself was unnecessarily weak and I was kind of like oh my another example uh, I did a speech at Oregon Health Sciences University and I had just come from the deep south and I introduced my topic by saying there's a really smart lady from Stanford named Sandra Bim after my speech that was like the first sentence in my speech one hour speech, after the speech, a group of, of people, mostly women, came down to me and they said, we find the use of the term lady to be pejorative and patriarchal. Uh-oh. Really? So I thought that was a little snippy, you know? I was like, really? Gosh, really? So I'm driving home and I was just all steamed about that. But then I started thinking about it. And I remembered the mid-60s when there was a movement in schools and hospitals to stop using the term colored to describe black people. And I remember lots of, of you know, 
white administrators back, oh, well, there's nothing wrong with the term colored. Well, there's something wrong with the term if they find something wrong with the term. So you don't get to decide that, you know? And that was the thing that I heard that, that kind of locked in for me. It was like, whether I think that's patriarchal or not is not the question. I certainly didn't mean it that way. But to the degree that they heard it that way, they were honestly telling me that, you know, reduced the impact of my speech. So I should have been grateful to them for that tip. But it's hard to Make sift sense? through that. Yeah, it's hard to sift through that when you first get feedback. You have to sit on it for a bit. You do. And decide. Well, and there's also bad feedback, too, when you think they're trying to be helpful, but then you realize that you're like, no, I probably shouldn't actually change that about myself. There you go. I think that's a huge observation. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. You've got to have that sense of self-confidence of, no, I'm going to. You know, I'm going to press on. Yeah, right. And, you know, thank them for their perspective and process it, think it through, but then move on. Yeah. And I find it, actually, I realized this a lot this summer, just watching the dynamics with the students and the male versus female. And it's so interesting because you'll get a few um, girls who will be the leaders and quote unquote demanding um, but a lot of them are so scared to be direct and like that, um, like the Microsoft lady was telling you, just be direct, just say what you mean. But right. I feel like women are so, I'm, I'm targeting women in this cause I've seen it. They're afraid to be, to take those words out and to just be direct and say what they want. Cause they're afraid of someone calling them demanding or bossy or something like that. So yes, well, you're right. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of wonderful research that that will validate exactly what you're saying so it's not just a feeling there are very different uh norms and expectations associated with gender and one of the things i advise all entrepreneurial young women to do is to really be on the hunt for other women role models that they can look at it and go wow she's doing it right what is she doing how is she doing, you know, really identifying that and taking it apart? Because uh, sure, you can learn things by looking at other male role models too, but it is it is different. And you are correct in saying that uh, women face very different communication challenges. Uh, there was a, a wonderful study. Uh, I'll think of the woman's name who ran it in a few minutes. <clears throat> but the gist of what she did was, she took uh, a mixed group of men and women, and they had to discuss some topic. And she was videotaping this. And it took one second for the men to start interrupting the women. Woman would start to say something, and the man would jump right in and step on top of it. So then she would take one guy out uh, numerically, do another group, and so where it was 50-50 before, now there's... Uh, six women and five men. Well, they still did it. They got down to, you know, ten women and one guy. <laughs> and the guy would still no. interrupt. Oh yeah. I mean, it was, it just oh, was mind blowing. So there's all kinds of situations that women find themselves in where you must go, what, what just happened here? You know, 
Why did that happen? We're perfectly professional people in a perfectly professional meeting, and somehow these two guys, and they don't even know they're doing it. They, yeah, they don't. It's just stuffed into their heads. I mean, it's so enculturated that for me to not interrupt, I have to really, you know, I have to like kind of hold my breath. Hold I your mouth. My hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, it's something I have to, it's that, part, it's that rooted in our culture. So yes, uh, if you are a woman professional, learn from other women professionals and uh, you're going to need to be that much stronger, uh, that much more precise in your communication. Mm-hmm. It's just the truth of it. Yeah. I've, I've learned that from experience and also just being around other young girls and watching it. So, But there's a lot more female entrepreneurs and leaders now, so there's so many more women to look up to in that way, which I've found to be very helpful. So, And I feel like being called bossy or demanding at some point is a badge of honor. You're kind of like, oh, okay, like I, I've finally been direct enough. Yes. And yes. So. Yeah, exactly. You've achieved that. So, okay, I want to zoom out a little bit. Um, and I know in your book you talked about, um, you know, someone who's afraid to share their dreams with the world. And you kind of feel stuck, like you don't. You're just at a hole, like you can't share your dreams because you feel intimidated or self-conscious about it. And I've definitely struggled with that, too. I feel like every entrepreneur struggles with that time period where you have an idea and and you want to bring it to the world, but you're really second guessing yourself sort of as a leader or an entrepreneur. So what kind of advice would you give to someone who is younger and not sure if their idea is is worth? I think you have to live for values and one of the difficulties in the world these days is the institutions that had historically uh, propagated articulated value sets like churches and universities and even kind of classic professions medicine and so forth it's all muddled. It's all muddy now. And um, now it's to the point where if people have really articulated values, they're often kind of wacky, you know? <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd that come from? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, ooh, I didn't know you felt so strongly about whatever. You know, I, uh, uh, I have, uh, I spent many years, 17 years as a vegetarian. And that, that was a very interesting experience. I still don't eat beef or pork, but uh, because I travel so much, I finally had to do something. Uh, so the, the, the reason I'm telling the story, though, is that I had this value of eating lower on the food chain, trying to be a little healthier, trying to understand different foods, um, but there's a point where that value was actually getting in the way of my ability to interact with other folks. I was in Japan and my client took me to a restaurant and on the way there I said, uh, please don't be offended, but I'm a vegetarian, so I'm going to order, you know, appropriately. Well, he tells the waiter in Japanese what I found out later was 
if this guy gets anywhere near me, he's going to have to kill himself. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it was like the strongest thing in the world. So the waiter goes like this. Oh, you know, oh, yeah. So now everybody's all cautious about what I'm eating. And it was like that was exactly what I didn't want to have happen. So I tell the story for a couple of reasons. One, to say I think you do need to drive your life with values and you need to behave. Your values are only good if you changes the way you actually act. So what's the relationship between what you're doing and the values that you hold? If you're all environmental and you're chucking all kind of crap out into your garbage and you're not living small, you know, really? Are you all that environment? You know, where, where, where are your values really? And so I think one of the first things that I would have people do is get in touch with what you actually deeply care about, what you want to be known for in your life. Life goes by so fast. And so what is it you want to stand for at, at the end of the day? I think it's super important. Then once you kind of get that going in your head, then you can start uh, being more forceful about what you believe is true and how you want to go about putting your idea out there. And I think the other piece you want to do, there's a guy who talks about uh, uh, the, the 110 problem, he calls it, and that is if you go tell your idea to 10 people and you get no positive feedback from that idea, you probably have a bad idea. So you, you have to be really brutal with your own ideas and be okay saying, well, okay, it was a maybe not that great of an idea or maybe you know, I need to change the idea. Uh, I wanted to start a speaker's bureau uh, just this past year because I felt like I could do it better than anybody else. Well, I couldn't make it make money. I couldn't figure out how to fund it. Uh, when I talked to other people, they were like, no, we're pretty happy with what we've got. So it was like, huh, I had to really back off of it and, and say, well, even if that was a great idea, I don't know that I've got the confidence to really double or triple down resources to make it happen. Right. And even for me, I've had a ton of random ideas, like ideas for apps or other solutions. <laughs> and then the more I think I about, about it, four a day. Yeah, I'm like, okay, but I, that's not me. I don't want to go into the app business. I don't want to go into that, the tech space. So it's like, you kind of weed it out that way. If you think about it a little bit deeper, it's, do I really want to go into that space? Probably yes. not. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Uh, and I think the other big thing too, if you're an entrepreneur is, You've got to break out of that mode where once you start one business, then you'll go, oh, that wasn't so hard. Yeah. I'll start another business, another business, <laughs> yeah. another business, you know, it's because it's just some paperwork. Yeah. It only costs like 20 bucks or 40 bucks to fill out the tax ID form. Oh, yeah. Send it in. It's not a big deal. So once you do that and then once you hire your first person, you're off to the races then mm -hmm. typically because it's like, oh, wow, that that really, you know, was a game changer. Mm -hmm. And I feel like once you hire the first person in your mind, you're like, wow, this is a real thing. This is a real it's thing. It's happening. What are some of the best mistakes, some of the really, maybe a couple different really noteworthy mistakes you've made in your career that sort of defined your, your career? And I feel like a lot of people are afraid to make mistakes, but I also feel like they're the best tools for shaping your career and 
and your values. So do you have one or two big mistakes that you've made along the way? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, uh, I think probably one of the, the most notable business mistakes I've ever made was uh, we, we took a, a, a job with Microsoft and I, I want to say around 2004 or five, they have a very large uh, event that they hold every year called MGX. And it's when they bring their global sales force together. And at the time, MGX was held in Atlanta. And uh, they bring in, I want to say, 20,000 people. I mean, it's a huge number of people that come to this thing. And we were responsible for delivering content to one track roughly, uh, let's say, 1,500 people. And we bid on this thing, and we got it. And it was the biggest contract we'd ever had. I want to say five, $600,000 worth of work. Big, big deal. And so uh, we went and we did the work. We didn't sleep for like two weeks. Uh, it was crazy. Everything changed while we were there. We got all done with the project, and I don't think we actually lost money, but I don't think we made a dime. So we had moved. What we had done was we were so eager to get the business, you know, yes, we've got this big contract, yes. We didn't do the thinking about, well, gosh, we have to, like you had to rent buses to get these people from one place to another. Well, the fact that the buses, uh, that the schedule went late, and now the buses are riding after 11 o'clock, doubled the fees for the buses. So budgets were getting blown up left and right, left and right, left and right. But what are you going to do? You're going to do the right thing for the client, right? You're going to make it happen for the client. That's not their problem. That was our problem. And we had all kinds of problems. So we ended up basically spending six months of serious work uh, to make nothing because we were too eager, didn't do our homework, didn't plan it through, uh, didn't tap into other resources that we should have in, in producing the bid. So it was one of those, I still, even when I think about it now, I'm like, ah, oh. cringe. Yeah. Yes. Cringe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The other big mistake that we've made is, uh, we went and did a very big pitch to a, to a large high-tech firm, and it would have meant a year's worth of work for us. The pitch did not go well. Uh, there were people in the, in the audience at the, the, representing the client company that were very aggressive and very intense, and we didn't deal with it very well. So as a team, we had one person who was doing the main pitch, and the rest of us were in the room. Well, we knew the pitch had not gone well. They, we knew we were doomed. So we're riding the elevator down, and the person who did the pitch is standing there with tears in her eyes because she knows we just lost a year's worth of work. And we have a strict policy in our company where you debrief immediately. So we, whatever happens, we say what worked, what didn't work. What can we do better? Blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm down in the parking garage of this building in Seattle, and I'm looking at her, and we're all standing around, and people were upset. And I said, you know what? 
Let's talk about this on Monday. One of the biggest mistakes I've ever made. Uh, it, it made her suffer for days when she shouldn't have. Uh, it didn't give the other people a chance to say anything who'd been sitting there suffering. I did it to try and protect people's feelings. Mm -hmm. And it was, we're, I think we're still paying for that mistake today. And that was years ago. Can you say what company it was? Or is that confidential? <laughs> uh, it was, that was actually a, a pitch to Amazon. Oh, wow. You know, um, you can't just go get that back. Right. Something I was wondering is, you know, at what point in your career did you finally feel like you were financially stable? And because, <laughs> you know, for a lot of, for myself, for a lot of younger people, it's they're wondering, okay, when do I have to not pinch pennies? Or when is, when am I finally going to break even? When am I going to feel secure in my finances? And it can feel like a long journey. So for you, at what point did you feel like, okay, I'm solid. I'm good. Uh, I'm still kind of working on that. Uh, when you're an entrepreneur, you tend to invest in your company. And so you might make money, but you tend to just roll that into hiring a new person or building a new, uh, computer thingy or whatever it is. You tend not to want to take money out of your own company. Um, and I think that's a good impulse, but you've got to be careful. I think the best thing I could tell you to do around the money piece is, uh, even if you're a natural money person, be sure you've got a talented professional working on your behalf, both at an accounting level inside your company, as well as a personal finance person. Um, one of the other things I love about millennials is uh, you're under 30 and you've got a financial plan. Our generation, you know, you sort of like you needed money to have a financial plan. Well, that's not the way that works. So get that information and get that wisdom uh, as quick as you can. Uh, for me, uh, I'm 57 years old and I'm dealing with the reality of how many more years I need to work in order to be stable. I want to continue to work. Right. I, I don't ever want to really retire. Yeah. But I would like to be able to slow down some. I'll tell you, the, the only time I felt really particularly good was I have two daughters that are age 30 and 27, and they're both married. And they both got married within 10 months oh, wow. of one another. So the fact that we were able to pay for their weddings <laughs> and, <laughs> and get through that was, was a moment of like, okay, well, that's, that's pretty good. And my kids were able to graduate with... Uh, not too much in the in the form of um, school debt, so that was that was happy. But uh, it's a tough thing. Uh, I remember uh, there's a guy who you may not have ever heard of. Even his name was Ross Perot, and uh, he was a very uh, interesting guy back in the '80s. He actually ran for president, and uh, he was a kind of a self-made maybe billionaire. I don't know, but he would do these speeches, and he would always talk about. He's running this huge company, and he said, number one rule for my managers is you will treat money like water in the desert. And I've never forgotten that. <laughs> and I actually found myself saying that. We started up a new line of business, and they had a little bit of money to 
to get it started. And I was like, you will treat this money <laughs> like it is water in the desert. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's real easy to have that stuff slip away uh, or not pay very, very close attention to it. Um, you know, we struggle with travel. So I'll send consultants to New York or to, you know, Cannes, France, or, you know, very fancy places where just buying dinner is going to cost $60, you know, or something, you know. And when you get into those environments, hotel rooms, $550 a night, ah, it's, and you're there. So it's like, well, that's what I have to, to do. But how do you, how do you find ways to be cheap, even when the, the place you're at is very expensive? You know, that's, that's a challenge. So what does a typical day look like for you? What's your routine? I'm always curious to know as an entrepreneur, if like no two days look the same. That's um, true. So what's That's sort true. of your routine? Well, uh, if I'm home, work, if I'm working like I am, I typically uh, get up in the morning and have coffee and then uh, scoot down here to my office and spend the first hour just going through email and kind of dispatching uh, the work of the day. And I have a, an, a, an administrative assistant who does a good job of blocking time for me. So like this past weekend, I did a planning session all weekend in Cape Cod, uh, Massachusetts. And now I have to write that up. So she'll know, okay, he just did a planning session. So he's going to need at least, you know, two days of six hours a day to be able to concentrate on that. So she'll block out time for me to to get things Gosh, done. Where do I get one of those? Where do I find her? I need that in my life. You do. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. And, you know, so there's a, there's a quick concept that I just really am enamored with in the, the rebuilding of medicine. There's this concept called the medical home. And the gist of it is that if you go to the doctor, uh, the, the experience you have will be a whole team of people working on your behalf to help you with whatever your issue is uh, medically. And the trick with the medical home is that if you're a doctor, then at the end of every week, you should have spent 90% of your time doing only things a doctor could do. And if you're a registered nurse, you spend 90% of your time doing things only a registered nurse could do. So you're working at your highest level of certification all the way through. So you've got 12 people, but they're all doing so that the doctor isn't doing things that an admin should be doing or that a nurse should be doing, and the nurse isn't doing things that the admin should be doing. So one of the things I like for you to do is to say, "Is it could I actually double my effectiveness by hiring a person to work for me 10 hours a week to handle this nasty part of my life that I'm not very good at and don't do well anyway. And if the answer is yes, <laughs> yeah. then it may well be worth it to bring on a person for, you know, 10 or $15 an hour to say, would you deal with this please? So I can focus on this where I can make $100 an hour or $200 an hour if I'm focused on that, right? So the, 
that's the thing. It's like, are you, are you stepping over dollars to pick up pennies? You know, that's the thing. Getting the right help to support you so that you can be truly leaning into dealing with real clients that are going to pay you real portion of it. Right. How often do you travel? Uh, usually about within two weeks a month. Um, so I'm knocking on two million miles on United. Wow. Yeah. Where does that get you? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I have the Alaska card, and I'm like, there's no way I only have this many points. I, I know. I've, like been, I've been on this plane constantly, <laughs> and it doesn't mean anything. Um, it, I think it gets you a uh, free pass to the uh, United Club for the rest of your life. That's about it. Oh, I guess that's it. So you get into like the little side room with the... That's the little fancy club. Yeah, right now I'm in it, but you just, you pay for it or you pay for it with miles. Right. Um, but, you know, it's it's more, it's more, so I'm traveling probably around 100,000 miles a year, air miles wow. a year. And it's too much. Yeah. It's not healthy. It's yeah. too much. It's a bad thing. So are you sending more of your team on those trips instead of you? Yes, and I'm trying to actually build interaction opportunities like this one where you and I can have a perfectly fine conversation even though we're several hundred miles apart. And so I'm trying to do more and more work via tech. So where can listeners find you? Where can they find your book? Any other resources? Sure. Uh, You can certainly find me at... Uh, our websites, which are EASCI.com, Extreme Arts and Sciences, EASCI, and then um, Strategic Arts and Sciences, all one word, strategicartsandsciences.com. You can find me there. Uh, books you can find on Amazon, and I have two out uh, with co-author Carmen Volake, but uh, those books are available, so there's uh, Evolutionaries, and then the second book is slammed. And then we're working on a third book called Two is One. And hopefully that'll be uh, coming out here before the end of the year. And uh, I'm always happy to hear from people. I I just, I got this uh, oh. little happy card from YEBW. And uh, some of the students oh, cool. uh, sent me these things. And you have no idea. I, I aren't those the so best? Much. I absolutely love getting thank you cards. It's probably my favorite. It's inspired me to write more thank you cards because I love getting them. Don't you think? I agree. And yeah, I agree. It means so much. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where because of this, when YEBW calls next year, I'll say, whatever, make it happen. You know, go, we're going to do it. I mean, that's where you build integrity and loyalty and the kind of relationships that really mean something. And that's the thing. I mean, uh, I've done all kind of work all over the country. I've got a gazillion connections on, on LinkedIn, but it is probably 30 or 40 professional connections that really support me. And when you build those connections, that's everything. I mean, that's, So you might jump from job to job to job, but there's no reason to burn the bridge. If you're going to jump from one job to the next, do it with integrity. 
tell them, I'm going to be leaving at the end of the summer. I'm going to go take this other job. I want to work my butt off until I leave, and I want to make sure that when I leave, if I called you back in a year, you'd be happy to hear from me. So, you know, really cherish those relationships that you have. I've seen so many people leave my company and feel like they have to, you know. Feel weird about it. Or, yeah. Yeah. They're like, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to be upset and I'm going to leave. Well, you can leave and you don't even have to be upset. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Why are you doing that to you? I don't understand that. It makes no sense to me. So, uh, you know, as far as these connections and how you find people and how you connect. So if anybody's actually sat through and, and listened to this discussion that you and I have had and they want to reach out to me, do so. Randy at EASCI.com, R-A-N-D-Y. Just shoot me an email and say, dude, what about this and what about that? And I will be happy to answer you because I think those kind of connections are what make all of life worthwhile. Yeah, I think that's a great point to end on. That's something that I've learned a ton in the last year is just reach out to people, even if you don't have a strict agenda, just to say you appreciate them or, or meet up for coffee. Just make yep. those connections. Yep. Something. It doesn't always have to be about getting something yeah. or doing something. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. making a connection. Yeah. so much for listening to another episode of why we work if you enjoyed this episode or other episodes please share it with your friends your family people in coffee shops uh wherever you hear people talking about podcasts also you heard randy's open invitation to shoot him an email and stay in contact with him really it sounds like he's open to any conversation so if you have questions about what we talked about on the podcast or just i don't know career advice uh, if you're starting a, a business and you want another perspective um that would be a great thing to bring to him and just get his insight Lastly, of course, go ahead and follow us on social media at Why We Work Pod and at Postgrad Media. Uh, like I said in the previous episode, this channel is not Postgrad Radio anymore. Obviously, it's Why We Work, and the mother platform you could call it is Postgrad Media. And as I said before, hopefully there will be some more channels and some more content coming from postgrad media. If anyone wants to reach out to me with recommendations on guests to have on the show or feedback or just to say hi, my email is dawn, D-A-W-N, at postgradradio.com. But for now, stay tuned to this channel. There will be a new episode coming out next week. But until then, here is a teaser. Then that weekend, I zeroed out the pricing on our website by mistake. And we still had only one order. And it was from someone who I worked with at Starbucks, who went through the website, made an order for $0, and then reached out to us and was like, hey, girl, you should give your stuff away for